Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Wednesday, April 6, 2022, and this is show number 883. Well, the show is many days early this week, which is great for you, but I'm recording all by my lonesome with no live audience. I'll survive, but remember, that means there's no live show on Sunday night. Now, of course, there's no reason you can't go to podfeet.com slash live at 5 p.m. Pacific time and chat with each other. Just know that Steve and I won't be there to join you. This week's guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Tom Merritt, host of the Daily Tech News Show, Court Killers, Know a Little More, Sword and Laser, and more podcasts than I can count. He's also a science fiction author with his book series, Pilot Axe, which you can find at tommerrittbooks.com. I asked Tom to come on Chit Chat to help me know a little more, see what I did there, about the past, present, and future of messaging. We start by talking about the grand old days when on the computer we had interoperable messaging services and later at least a way to aggregate the protocols so we could use one client to talk over different services. We covered SMS and the new and improved RCS, which is from 2007, where he explained the roles that carriers play in implementation. We talk about the green bubble, blue bubble problem with splintered messages and how RCS might be able to help if Apple would implement it and why they probably won't. Finally, we talk about the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, which is starting to work its way through the European Commission. And we talk about how Tom interprets the possible, probable ways the big companies might implement these changes that are demanded surrounding messaging in particular. I tried to get Tom to say he was optimistic that we may one day soon have an integrated messaging service to rule them all, but I wasn't quite successful. I hope you'll check out Chit Chat Across the Pond, episode number 722 in your podcatcher of choice, or of course, you can also find it in Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite. I was asked one time what one application would keep me from ever leaving the Mac, and without even thinking, I instinctively said, Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba. There's several reasons for my response, not the least of which is that it's fundamental to how I create my podcasts, but there's more to it than that. It's a delightful app. It's well-designed. It's supported by a dedicated and patient staff. It's accessible to the blind via voiceover. What else can you ask for in an app? Audio Hijack has had incremental upgrades over the years, but hasn't had a major redesign in at least seven years. I know that because I did a video tutorial for Screencast Online about Audio Hijack in 2015 and then an update show in 2020. Note that during these seven plus years, no extra charge has come from Rogue Amoeba beyond that original purchase price. Now, I honestly couldn't have told you what I would like to see improved in Audio Hijack, but Rogue Amoeba have just released Audio Hijack 4, and it's a very good upgrade. It may not look like a huge upgrade at first glance. It's definitely prettier and graphically more interesting, but these changes are huge usability improvements. At the same time, if you've been a long-term Audio Hijack user, it will still feel like a comfortable pair of shoes. In order to tell you about the new Audio Hijack 4, I think it would be good to do a quick primer on what problems Audio Hijack solves and how it solves them. The simplest explanation of the problem Audio Hijack solves is that it allows you to access it allows you access to record and route audio in ways that Apple didn't build into the Mac operating system. That's why it's called Audio Hijack. It hijacks these sources. Let's say you want to record the audio from a Zoom call. You can do that with Audio Hijack. Or maybe you want to pull the audio from a YouTube video so you can listen to it in the car. Audio Hijack can do that with both hands tied behind its back. What if you need to record both sides of a conversation onto separate tracks and add filters to improve the audio along the way? 
That's where Audio Hijack really starts to shine. Maybe you want to teach how to do things on the Mac for your blind buddies. You can even capture voiceover talking. Want to make digital copies of your vinyl records and clean the audio up on the way? Audio Hijack is a master at that. Is the audio not loud enough on your Mac? With Audio Hijack, you can crank the sound up. Pretty much any audio that can come out of your Mac can be captured, or shall I say hijacked, with Audio Hijack. Audio Hijack lets you perform all these feats of magic by dragging blocks onto a canvas. You start by building an Audio Hijack session with a source block and an output block. Source blocks can be one of three things, a microphone, an application, or system audio. Output blocks can be an output device, such as a speaker or headphones. It can be a recorder to save your audio file. It can be a live streaming service, such as maybe YouTube Live or Twitch, or it can be a broadcast block that is for streaming to an online radio server. At its simplest, you could drag in a microphone source block and then a recorder output block. When you drag in the recorder to the right of the microphone block, a connection line will magically appear between the source and the output, showing you how the audio will flow. If you run this session and make sure the output recorder block is turned on, you can speak into your microphone and your voice will be recorded. You can stop recording either by stopping the session or turning off the recorder block. You have now created your first audio hijack session. Congratulations! In addition to the basic source and output blocks, Audio Hijack comes with a plethora of built-in effects to make your audio sound exactly as you want it to sound. These effects include, oh, like a 10-band equalizer, adjustments to bass and treble, a low-pass filter to get rid of high-frequency noise, a volume block to adjust one source's volume versus another, and more. There are two different kinds of meters, so you can watch for peaking or audio that's too low and make real-time adjustments. There are more advanced blocks, such as the one that will remove clicks if you're recording from vinyl records, and a time-shifting block to pause and rewind live audio. I told you it was magic. Audio Hijack also supports all of the audio unit effects that come native with the Mac operating system under the hood. You simply drag these effects in between the source and output blocks. They automatically make room for the new block. If an effect isn't quite what you wanted, you can simply delete the block and try another one. It's so easy and fun to play with that you'll find yourself experimenting and learning how the different blocks affect your audio. Now that's kind of a top-level overview of how Audio Hijack works and a taste of a few things it can do. Now it's very tempting to keep digging deeper, but I really want to talk about the new look and features of Audio Hijack. If you've been a long-time user of Audio Hijack, the first thing you'll notice is that Rogue Amoeba gave it a fresh coat of paint. The blocks are a brighter blue, the graphics on them stand out even more, and the familiar round gray button to make your sessions go has turned into a bright blue run button but this is so much more than a new coat of paint. That little change in the run button is actually the bellwether for the visual changes Rogue Amoeba made in Audio Hijack. In the old design, the round gray button looked like a record button. For the uninitiated, this was very confusing. You'd hit the round button, but depending on your session, it may or may not start recording. That simple change from a gray unlabeled button to a bright blue run button tells both new and experienced users exactly what's going to happen. The session will run, activating all of the session's blocks. I can't emphasize enough how this is the kind of change that is all over the new Audio Hijack 4 to make it more user-friendly and easier to learn. You know how in an equalizer you've got a set of sliders that go up and down from the low-end bass up to the high-end treble? 
The new 10-band equalizer block in Audio Hijack has a graphic right on it that looks exactly like the shape you've drawn on your equalizer, or maybe you've chosen one of the stock ones, but it's the shape that you've chosen, and it's right there on the graphic. You can tell at a glance whether you're boosting the high or the low end with that particular block. Another example of better graphics on the blocks is on the block called Channels. With this block, you can do things like killing the left channel and only keeping the right. On the block, now you can see the left channel coming to a dead end and the right channel continuing on with an arrow. This is kind of a complicated concept to work with, and having the graphics so much more obvious makes it even that much easier to understand. With Audio Hijack, some blocks have interfaces that are helpful to keep up at all times. For example, the recorder block is handy to have floating and available to be turned on and off to start and stop recording. In the old version of Audio Hijack, you could tear the window off to make it float, but there was no visual indicator that that could be done. You just had to be in the know. Well, you can still tear it off in the same way, but there's also a graphical button showing that the window can be detached and then pinned so it stays visible. It's another very small change, but one which will help beginners use the tool much more quickly. I've been using the word sessions to explain the setups you create for different scenarios. In Audio Hijack 3, the sessions window was a grid showing the sessions you'd created. Each session was represented by one source and one output block, but there wasn't enough information to really help identify a session. The main function of the sessions window was to launch sessions. In Audio Hijack 4, the sessions window is much more powerful. Instead of a grid, it's a list of the sessions. By using a list view, they can have a lot more information and controls available on that one screen. The sources icons provide more information. So for example, my chit chat sessions shows a mic and Skype, which is exactly what's being recorded in that session. Next in the list view is a column entitled auto run with a toggle to set each session to run at launch or do nothing. If you have a few you run every time you launch Audio Hijack, this would be a big time saver. Finally, the last column shows the status of each session with a bright blue run button right at your fingertips. If you know what a session does, and there's no controls you need to fiddle with, having the run button on the main sessions window is awesome. My live show session, for example, requires no fiddling, so I don't need the window floating around in my way unless something goes wrong. Once you start a session running, in bright gold letters, you can see how long it's been running. Now, I have to say, I never had a problem with the old sessions window, but I immediately like the utility of the new version and find the information on this newly formatted window gives me more situational awareness of my sessions. In Audio Hijack 3, sessions were just one of three tabs in the same window. The other two tabs were to view all of your stored recordings for all of your sessions and the schedules you've created for all of your sessions. In the redesign, these last two capabilities have been moved to the right sidebar of individual sessions. So this is a much more intuitive place for these options. If I'm in my Chit Chat Across the Pond session, the sidebar only shows me my Chit Chat Across the Pond recordings instead of having them all jumbled up with all of the other recordings. Likewise, schedules are specific to sessions, so why see them lumped together? Audio Hijack 4 introduces the ability to script your sessions. This fourth tab in the sidebar invites you to use some of the pre-built scripts, such as defining what should happen when the recording stops. Well, I always look for my recording in Finder as soon as the recording stops, so I was delighted to see that they had a script to reveal the recording in Finder as soon as the recording stopped. This is perfect for me.
Now, Audio Hijack 4 allows much more advanced scripting than this. You can use JavaScript or run shortcuts with it. I've not gotten into this part of Audio Hijack 4 just yet, but you know I will. Now, I've mentioned that when you drag blocks onto the canvas of Audio Hijack, little blue lines form to show you the audio connections. These connections are created automatically. If, for example, you drag an audio unit effect to the right of a microphone block, the line will connect them automatically. This works great until you get into more complex setups. If you have two parallel audio paths, for example, like let's say you're hijacking your own mic and the output of an application, and you drag a recorder to the right between those two rows, both sources will connect to the recorder. That's great if you wanted to record both of them, but what if you only wanted to record your mic? In order to get rid of that automatic connection line, you have to start dragging the recorder block farther and farther away until the connection line snaps to the one you don't want it connected to, leaving only the one connection you did want. This was probably the only irritating, I, I mean, irritating is probably overstating it, maybe finicky thing in all of Audio Hijack. But guess what? It is not irritating or finicky anymore. In Audio Hijack 4 session windows, there's one more tab called Info, and that contains settings for the session. One of those settings allows you to toggle off automatic connections. With automatic connections toggled off, every block gets little connection pluses designating where you can make those connections. If you drag from the plus on one block to the plus on another block, you get a new connection. When you're happy with your new anarchist connections, tap the stop editing button and those pluses go away. While automatic connections are quite orderly looking, you can get some delightfully wiggly connections when you go off-roading with manual connections. You can toggle automatic connections back on, but they warn you that your connections might change. In the silly example I created where I just made it look as goofy as possible without thinking about actual audio flow, all that hard work I'd done to make it look silly and to re rearrange them was lost. But I was able to get it back with a simple undo. Rogamiba added two very important new effects which seem to be targeted towards podcasters. I suppose musicians could use them too, but I choose to think they're just for us. One of the problems when recording from multiple microphones or from a mic and an application is that you can get wide variations in the volume over time. Audio Hijack now contains a simple compressor block that is designed to reduce the volume of loud audio and boost the volume of quiet audio, all before the audio is recorded. Now, I currently use Auphonic Leveler to do this after my recordings have been saved, but this might be an even better approach. The single compressor block has four modes, voice, duh, music, radio, and movie. As I said, I suppose it could be for non-podcasters. The second effect they added is a virtual mixer. If you have multiple sources being recorded, whether they be microphones or applications, by running them through a mixer block, you can control each source independently through one interface. You can change the volume live while recording. You can use the solo button to mute all but one source, and you can fade each source from left to right channel. If you want to control all of the sources at once, you can do a multi-track fade to zero or 100%. If you have the need to use the same mixer setup often, you can save up to five mixer presets and bring them back with a single button push. There are a lot of little changes with Audio Hijack 4. If the dark gray background of Audio Hijack depresses you, Audio Hijack 4 now allows for light mode. I find it very pretty, although it is a bit harder to tell which connection line is selected while editing. I've sent Rogue Amoeba a suggestion that they could increase the contrast to fix this. Audio Hijack now allows you to change the name of any block in a session. 
It's not something I do all the time, but I can definitely see where I'd want to do it. I use an Elgato Wave XLR interface, which has my microphone input and my headphones output, which means all sessions in Audio Hijack show that name for the input and the output. With Audio Hijack 4, I was able to change the names of these blocks to say mic and headphones. It's not a necessary improvement, but yet again a way that the new design improves understanding of how Audio Hijack works. I'm starting to picture how the design process worked at Rogue Amoeba. I envision CEO Paul Kafasis saying to the crew, no graphical element is sacred, question everything. I don't know if he actually said that, but I think only by starting in this way could it be possible that they found every tiny little pain point, even those that are in the, I don't know, like a paper cut category, and they found ways to improve the user's immediate understanding of the functionality by approaching it that way. Audio Hijack is $64 to new customers, and an upgrade from Audio Hijack 3 for existing customers is only $29. When you look at that purchase price, remember that Audio Hijack hasn't charged a single dime for upgrades throughout at least the last seven years. That's just as long as I've been counting. And remember how tired you are of subscriptions? That's a bargain price. They also have bundle pricing with other applications that they sell, so check out all of the options at rogamoeba.com. I'm going to hand the microphone over to Kurt Liebezeit now, also known as PDX Kurt in the live chat room, as he tells us about his new e-bike purchase and how he chose it. In Kenneth Graham's 1908 children's classic, The Wind in the Willows, the rich and easily distracted Toad is out with a few friends in his shiny new horse-drawn caravan, when suddenly they're overtaken by a rude driver, driving what was then the new technology of the day, a motor car causing the caravan to wreck, and leaving Toad to stare wistfully at the rapidly receding motor car, murmuring toot-toot to himself as he dreams of acquiring the new technology. I couldn't help but think of that scene the first time I was overtaken by someone on an electrically-assisted bicycle, or e-bike. There I was, pedaling along at a respectable 14 miles an hour, when a woman on an e-bike with bug antennae sticking out of her helmet overtook me at a furious clip, apparently without effort. Toot toot indeed. Unlike Toad, I didn't crash, and I did not immediately rush out to purchase the magical new conveyance, but I did start researching what might be the right e-bike for me. When I first started thinking about getting an e-bike, my primary goal was to reduce my 75-minute commute time on my 13-mile journey to work. I carry a lot of stuff, Part of the route involves a long, steep uphill segment across a bridge, and there are often headwinds, both going to work and coming home. So the problem to be solved is how to choose an e-bike that would reduce my commute time and make the journey less onerous at a cost that didn't break the bank. Purchasing an e-bike mostly involves making choices along several different e-bikes' specific axes. The class of e-bike, drivetrain technology, style of bicycle, and mail order versus in-store purchase. E-bikes come in two main classes, Class 1 and Class 3. In the U.S., Class 1 bikes offer assistance up to 20 miles per hour, while Class 3 bikes will assist you up to 28 miles per hour. As you might expect, Class 3 bikes cost significantly more, adding about $1,000 to the price in the more established bicycle lines. I chose a Class 1 bike, partly to save money, 
but also because I felt that there was increased risk from car drivers who might be surprised at how quickly a Class 3 bicycle would approach them. Most of the modern e-bikes use a bottom bracket motor built into the frame. The primary advantage of this is that it allows the system to directly sense the torque that you're applying via the pedals and add to that torque with the motor. When you're pedaling lightly, the motor adds a small amount of torque, and when you're pedaling strongly, the motor adds more torque. A friend of mine, who is the first person I knew personally to buy an e-bike, refers to this as God Mode. The system seamlessly multiplies your efforts to make it seem like you have godlike strength. The competing drive technology is a hub motor built into the back wheel. This was used on early e-bikes and is still used on cheaper e-bikes today. With most hub motor-based systems, it is more like you choose a set amount of power from the motor via a twist grip on the handlebars, and your legs add on to that at whatever effort level you choose. A few hub motors estimate torque from other inputs like speed and crank position, but the effect is non-linear and not quite as natural as the bottom bracket motor technology. Hub motors also have the reputation of being less able to supply propulsion at high speeds, since the motor comes after the gearing. Some newer hub motors have internal gearing to make up for that shortcoming. I chose a bottom bracket motor because I wanted the better riding experience. An e-bike motor and battery add significant weight to a bicycle, around 12 to 15 pounds minimum. This makes it a little nonsensical to put them on frames that are minimalist, as most regular, non-assisted bikes strive for the lightest and most graceful designs. Consequently, many e-bike manufacturers have gone to the other extreme and taken to styling their bikes like motorcycles, with chunky frames and wide, wide tires. After a lifetime riding lightweight, graceful bikes, I just couldn't see myself astride one of the motorcycle wannabes, so I chose a bicycle design based on the Dutch ethos. Sturdy and practical, but undeniably a bicycle. The mail-order versus in-store purchase decision is an interesting choice to make, especially in the e-bike market. You can definitely get more bang for your buck with the mail-order purchase, but you're spending a considerable sum of money on something that you don't get to see or try out first. You can find excellent reviews and a user forum at a site called electricbikereview.com, but an in-store purchase is still the lower-risk path. In person, you can try out a range of e-bikes to find the right one for you, and you're guaranteed to be working with a shop that can service your e-bike properly for the long term. It also allows you to connect the paper specifications with some real-world riding experience. This turned out to be the most important part of my bike selection process, so I'm going to go into more detail about that here. Earlier, I mentioned that I chose a Class 1 bike limited to 20 mile per hour assistance. You can actually go faster on downhills and such, but it only assists you up to 20 miles per hour. I decided that I wanted an e-bike that would allow me to travel somewhere near that upper limit most of the time without draining the battery too much or making me too tired. Now here I have to take a little detour to explain that most e-bikes offer different levels of torque assistance, selectable via push buttons on the handlebars. Higher levels of torque multiplication translate into greater propulsion and decreased range, and vice versa. Most e-bikes offer at least three levels of assistance. 
an eco mode, a touring mode, and a sport mode. The place where real-world experience on the e-bike comes into play is because you can't assume that eco-mode experiences the same on two different e-bikes. The torque limits and associated ranges are usually different on different models. More confusing yet, you can have an e-bike where the eco-mode supplies more torque yet still has a longer range due to a larger battery or a more efficient drive system. In my decision process, I started with the lowest model e-bike from Gazelle, a Dutch supplier that sold in-store at specialty bicycle shops, and I tested each of them to see what price I would have to pay to get an e-bike with enough oomph in eco-mode to allow me to sustain 18 miles per hour indefinitely, or at least with the effort I was used to expending. With a test ride, I found that their lowest spec bike, the Gazelle Medeo T9 City model, didn't offer enough torque in eco mode. I found that I had to increase assistance to tour mode to maintain 18 miles an hour. Riding in tour mode on this cheapest bicycle would have dropped the range from 65 miles in eco mode down to 35 miles in tour mode, and that was an unacceptable trade-off. Going to the next model up, the Gazelle T9 Medeo Standard, the torque limit in eco mode was increased from 30 newton meters to 35 newton meters. That 17% increase in eco mode torque was enough to allow me to meet my 18 mile per hour goal on flat ground. This was a case where the tour mode torque of the city model was coincidentally equal to the eco mode torque of the standard model, with nearly double the range due to staying in eco mode. So, the T9 Medeo standard model met my requirements nicely, with a theoretical eco-mode range of 60 miles that was a little more than double the round-trip distance of my commute. Having this margin of safety and range is important because the battery may not offer as much energy in cold weather, and sometimes I might need to use tour mode for most of the ride due to those headwinds. Incidentally, I've found that the estimated battery range is pretty accurate overall, though you can be fooled by the range number updated continuously on the handlebar display. This instantaneous forecast is a function of battery charge, assistance level, and recent power output history. Sometimes after going up a hill, you will see the forecasted range actually go up as you pedal along at lower power output. Of course, it always goes down overall. You might be wondering about the next model up in price, the Gazelle Medeo T10. The T10 has one more gear range on the derailleur, 10 versus 9, a motor that offers greater torque multiplication in each mode, a battery mounted lower on the frame, and a price of $500 greater. I'd already found out from my test rides that I was only using the top five gears of the 9-speed cassette on the T9, so adding a tenth gear in the middle really was no benefit. The, tor the greater torque multiplication in eco mode might have kept me out of tour mode on small hills, but my route is mostly flat with one big hill that was going to require tour mode regardless. The lower center of gravity with the battery might have been nice, but not $500 nicer. From there, e-bike features and costs can go up ridiculously. The top-of-the-line Gazelle e-bike has continuously variable gearing in a sealed rear hub, a carbon fiber belt drive, and Class 3 speed. It costs nearly $5,000.
While the carbon fiber belt drive and sealed hub gearing are said to be more weatherproof and lower maintenance, I didn't think that they justified the much higher price for me. One wonderful feature that all of the Gazelle bikes have, even on the lower priced models, is hydraulic disc brakes. Once you use hydraulic disc brakes in the rain, you'll never go back to rim brakes. I ended up purchasing Gazelle Medeo T9 standard model locally, in store, with 9 speed derailleur drivetrain, bottom bracket motor, 60 mile eco range, hydraulic disc brakes, front suspension forks, and sturdy Dutch bicycle styling for $2,600. At this point, you might be wondering how much I was able to reduce my commute time. Although I was able to raise my cruising speed from 14 miles per hour to over 18, an increase of about 30%, the stoplights and other traffic controls mean that my overall commute time only went down about 20% from 75 minutes to under 60. The good news is that I think I hit the sweet spot of price and performance. I could have paid hundreds or even thousands more and probably not made much of a difference in commute time or enjoyment. I realize that I haven't said much about how it feels to ride my e-bike, but the best way that I can think to express it is like this. Riding the fully loaded e-bike uphill and against the wind I can feel just as swift and agile as when I'm on my minimalist racing bike on flat ground, or even swifter and more agile if I feel like pushing a button. Well, thank you so much for that, Kurt. That was really, really interesting. I love your delivery on this, and I love the high points that you explain. Without going into too much detail, I think you gave us a real flavor for where e-bike technology has gone. If anybody's really interested in this, they should go look at the photos that Kurt uh, included in his blog post, because you can really see what he's talking about, about these different motor positions. And I have to say, the bike he chose is really pretty. This week, I am absolutely floored by the incredible generosity of Philip Victor Richardson, who went to podfee.com slash PayPal and donated a very large sum to help support the work we do here at the Podfeed Podcast. This donation came as quite a surprise, as a few years ago, Philip sent me an email apologizing for needing to stop donating via Patreon for personal reasons. No one should ever apologize for that. Philip has more than made up for it, and I'm delighted that his circumstances have made it possible for him to help out again. If you'd like to be amazing like Philip, please consider pushing the red support the show button on podfee.com and find a method that matches your pocketbook with the value you get from the shows. Thank you so much, Philip, for your generosity. It's time for another CSUN Assistive Tech Conference interview. I'm with Gary Bean of New Vision uh, Concepts, and he's got some products for people with macular degeneration. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. All right, I see, uh, I didn't tell you ahead of time, this is an audio podcast, but some people will see video, but remember to describe everything for people who aren't seeing. I understand. Sort of like they've got macular degeneration, maybe. I understand. I can do that. I've been, I've done that in interviews before. All right, so I see a bunch of keyboards, I see a camera, I see a display. What are we doing here? So my company, New Vision Concepts, writes software, and in general, it's replacement software. You would stop using programs that you've been using in the past and use programs that I've written because they're easier to see and easier to use. 
The display that you see here, which consists of a camera, a computer, and several keyboards, is just the vehicle that I use to deliver my software. I, I buy these hardware items from somewhere else. It's not something that I personally have created, but I've chosen them because they're compatible with my software. I gotta say, the, the keyboard on the right, each button is about an inch across. It looks like it'd be really fun to type on. Well, and, and that keyboard in particular is a, for people who hunt and peck. If you're a good typist, you want a keyboard where the keys are in the right spot, and the keyboard here on the left, that's a high contrast colored keyboard, is the right one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but you can really read those letters. Those are jumping out. They're bright yellow keys with giant black letters on them. Yes, that's right. And the keyboard on the far right is the same color scheme, but it has physically bigger keys. They're like an inch square. And so it's a lot easier for a person with macular degeneration to find the key they want and not miss the key that they want. They yeah, make more mistakes. Okay, exactly. So, so you've written software that you're running on the on a PC here. Yes. And uh, by the way, we asked about it. It's in Power Basic, right? It is. We're kind of a nerd audience, but you've got a camera. I don't quite see what the camera is doing here. All right. At the moment, the camera is doing nothing. But in general, if I turned the camera software on, it would display what's under the camera on the screen, and you would be able to magnify it to any level that you wanted. You would be able to do OCR to extract the text from whatever the image is. You'd be able to take snapshots. Um, and this is kind of interesting. So I've seen the, the big displays where, where you've got kind of, um, well, I think of like an old microfiche, but yes. most kids today don't know what that is, but a flat platform, you put a book down or a magazine and That's then you, correct. and then you, uh, it's projected on the big screen. But what you've got here is a tiny little camera mounted on a tiny little arm. That's correct. It does the same function that you just described. Uh, so for example, do you want me to demonstrate that? Yes. So if I touch, uh, let me do a quick, uh, uh, description first. My easy reader software, I have 75 different applications. I display a limited number of them on a bar across the bottom of the screen with big icons, or roughly an inch square. So of the 75 apps, the ones that are there now are the ones I consider most people would want to use on a regular basis. I'm guessing that's a, a spreadsheet and, and a word processor, the first two things. Well, a grid of boxes and a T, did I guess? Bad guess. Oh. <laughs> the T in this case is TeamViewer. When my, my low vision customers need help, uh, me being able to see and control their PC is very important. So oh, that I have makes a sense. team viewer option. This, the button on the left is the off button. Okay. In every application, all 75 that I write, you touch the lower left hand or upper, right hand, upper left hand button to turn off the app. The second button is the one that shows you all of my apps in one screen. Ah, okay. This is all 75, and, and it's not suitable for low vision people having that much stuff on one screen, which is why I have a bar across the bottom that only has, it's a launch pad for just the most important applications. My customers can still go to that big, big image and run any application of mine, but typically they operate off this. So, so they would configure it to the apps they use the most, like right. their mail program or whatever? And I would help them do that. No, it's probably not their mail program, it's your mail program. My mail program. So let's do, let's start with the camera, since you ask about that. Uh, there's a button down here that's supposed to look like a camera. All of my apps are single click. Low vision people struggle sometimes with depth perception, tap? and yeah. so double tap is bad, so you click on it once. By the way, this the one inch uh, icons he's talking about, it's on a touchscreen uh, PC, so he's able to just tap this giant one inch button of a camera. Correct. And you could use a mouse if you want. And I have keyboard shortcuts as well for people who prefer to go that route. So we don't have this quite a line. Let me take this piece of paper and move it in the right spot. So he's got a piece of paper that's as big as better. Low cost is better yet. And he's got the camera facing down on it. And now it's 
yep. uh, a couple inches tall on uh, yep. on the screen. So all it does is take what's there and it puts it on the screen and magnifies it. If you want to make it bigger, there are several ways you can do it. There are some icons across the top which say plus or minus, bigger or smaller, or you can simply touch the screen and it'll jump up in size as well. Each time you touch, it gets bigger and there's a button to press to take it back to no magnification. And, and at the 90% level, that's what my customers want out of a camera. Yeah, yeah. And again, you only had to ever touch anything once. That's right. That's right. It's ex it, the, the mantra for my product is easy to see and easy to use. And what you're seeing is how easy it is to use. We haven't yeah. looked at text much. I'll show you the easy to see here in a second. Okay. Um, all of my programs may have multiple rows of icons, meaning there are more commands that are available to you. So rather than have one really big, long toolbar. Where everything gets real teeny. And that's exactly right. All of my apps have a button you can press where a new row of icons appears. So in this case, uh, here's a button to do a snapshot. And here's a button to take the text out of the image, an OCR conversion. Uh, here's one. My software can do a real-time conversion of video to two colors. So, for example, if I press that button, I can change the color. This is the real-time. Each real -time. time he's touching it, it's going from, it, right now he's got a blue background with yellow letters. It was black on white, white on black. That's right. I just cycle through pre-assigned sets of colors, and the user can change those colors if they want. Now, from my understanding, one of the interesting aspects of macular degeneration is different people can see different color contrasts better than other. You know, it's different That's exactly for each person. right. Out of my customer base, a good number of them like white letters on black background. About another half of them like the yellow letters on blue background. My mother used to use yellow on blue. If you go to one optometrist, every optometrist that I've talked to will tell you a different set of colors as to what they think is the best. But in the end, it's whatever the customer decides that they want. So my camera can do that, but in general, I have found that my customers tend to like the normal colors, whatever the color of the object is, as opposed to the um, binary color mode that I just showed you. Interesting, okay, but it's available if they do want it. It is available if they okay. want it. People use this, they get mail in, letters uh, from the, the, whatever, email bills, or they put books under the camera and they read the books while it's under the camera. I'm just astonished at how great this is working with such a small camera. Well, the, the, the resolution of this camera is not much different than some of the ones you talked about. Um, 1920 by 1080 is the HD resolution. This particular camera is actually quad HD, which means it has four 1920 by 1080 quadrants. The good thing about that is, is that this camera can zoom in to about four to six X with almost no distortion. The, the holy grail for cameras is an optical zoom no distortion at any magnification. But those cameras cost, can cost well over a thousand dollars. So the lower cost cameras use a digital zoom capability and those that have this high resolution sensor give a better magnification without distortion. That makes sense. So let me ask you um, what you actually sell here. So we've got a touchscreen PC, it looks like it's an HP, it and is. a camera and a couple keyboards. of keyboards. Uh -huh. Do you sell a set of all this or with including the software? Or they can buy the software. They can get the camera, the computer, the keyboards, there's some speakers back there, and my software for $35.50. That's or, not bad. Not bad at all. And if they have their own computer that they would rather use it on, they can buy just my software for $15.50. Wow. Regardless of what, how they buy it, they get free lifetime support, free upgrades. And we joke because I'm 70. So lifetime support is means how long you are? My lifetime. That's okay, right. So we want to send you some fruits and vegetables. <laughs> uh, you know. That is right. That is right. <laughs> 
So the, the camera is a very, there are four things, four things my people tend to want. They like the camera, that's in the top three. They like a book reader. My software can import books from Kindle and you can read those on screen. No, that's cool. It's very cool. It's, it's one of the major reasons people buy my software. So I'm gonna, this is the icon for the book. I'm gonna open it up. And here's a book called Golden Prey. It's a Kindle book uh, from John Sanford. And once you have it open, it works very much like a, a phone might look. You can use your finger to wander through the book, with, to scroll. You can use your fingers to change the font size. Some of my people don't handle the gestures that well, and so for them, I provide icons, like a plus or minus, that will let them increase and decrease the size. And macular degeneration tends towards people as we get older, and we also lose dexterity and feeling, feeling in our fingers. That's true. So those two things going together would make the, the That's buttons right. That's right. The, the, the finger problem is not from macular degeneration, it's just a product of age. And so my people tend not to be able to double click. They, they, right. they have some difficulty scrolling. And so these buttons that are across the top are kind of the best compromise of them all. Yeah, yeah, this is very interesting. Now, another thing about all of my easy reader programs is that it can read the content to you. So for example, if you're in this book and you wanted it to start reading right there, you would press the button and there's a button across the top that says play. It starts playing. It underlines. Lighter off the fireplace mantle, and walk. Do you have a choice of voices? You do. You can have a male or female voice. Um, I've had several people ask me recently about other voices, and I'll probably be adding some to that. Yeah, some Most of the of natural language voices are really getting there. Well, m zero of my customers have asked for a new voice. I have found that the people at this conference are more knowledgeable of what's possible. Yeah. And so while, while my 85-year-old client may have no idea of what questions to ask, you folks, people here, have asked me a lot more technical questions. So yeah, I'm interesting. Yeah. So but we might not know what they need. <laughs> we know the tech side, but we might not know what they actually need. Well, that's right. So all of my programs look just like this. If you, I'm going to get out of So you've got a consistent interface across all of them. We probably have time for one more. All right. This is my email client. This is like the third most important program to my people. It looks very much like the book reader. It's got an icon row across the top. It's got minimal content. Minimal content on every page is a big deal. Macular degeneration people cannot extract information if there's too much stuff on one screen. Microsoft Outlook is a perfect example of the worst application. I use it personally, it's great, but it has so much stuff and it's so small and the colors sequences are so poor that you need something different. So I wrote a different email client. In my case, this took is- took Outlook and said, let's do it the opposite of that. <laughs> yep, so as an example, if you wanted to read an email, there's a button you press to download your email. Once you have a list of emails, you can view it by just pressing a button. Here's the entire email, which you can scroll just like it was a book. And if you wanted it to play to you, you could pick where you want it to play and press the play button. And read it for you. Wow, this is really, really interesting. So the company is called New Vision Concepts. The software is called Easy Reader. Correct. Where would somebody go to find out more? Well, uh, I have a website, newvisionconcepts.com. In Texas, where I'm located, I have my products on display at some of the low vision centers. There are one, two, three, four, five, six in Texas. And I have one in Tampa Bay, Florida. Where in Texas? Uh, two in uh, Three in Dallas two in Austin, and one in San Antonio. Very good. Well, thank you very much. It was really nice to meet you, Gary. Well, I appreciate you coming by and asking the questions.
Last week, Steve got his Mac Studio with the M1 Max, and his studio display was supposed to be delivered this week, but unfortunately, it hasn't come yet, so he hasn't hardly gotten to play with it at all. As you can imagine, he's pretty excited about it, though. He's currently sporting a 27-inch iMac quad-core i7 from 2017, along with a 27-inch LG 5K display. He had an Adobe WC Thunderbolt 3 dock so he could connect the following peripherals. He's got a Logitech C920 webcam, the Elgato Wave XLR audio interface for his mic and headphones, because Marty Sobo told us to. He's got a Seagate hard drive for Time Machine backups, a Samsung T5 SSD for his carbon copy cloner backups. He's got a Blu-ray burner, which he actually uses to rip our discs to the Plex library really often. He's got a Qi charger over USB for his iPhone, an HP C4480 printer, and Ethernet. When we ordered the Mac Studio and Studio Display, I was looking at all those lovely ports on those two units, and it got me to thinking, will Steve even need a dock when he gets these two devices? Since diagramming is evidently my new favorite hobby, I whipped open the Draw.io app and I went to town mapping out Steve's current setup and the new computer layout. On the advice of Adam Angst, I took the time to find photos of each of the devices and use those instead of plain blocks to represent all of the devices. I gotta tell you, that's a lot more work. Thanks, Adam. Uh, because I, to get the arrows in Draw.io to stick to the images, I need to erase the white space from around the image using the Instant Alpha tool in Preview and then crop the image down to super tight to the edges. Makes a much cooler diagram, but I just wanted you to appreciate all my extra work. Anyway, with his current setup, uh, describing all of the, uh, the different things I told you he has plugged into his OWC dock, he still has a few unused ports. This is, again, with the 27-inch iMac and the 27-inch LG 5K and the OWC dock. On his iMac, he has three unused USB-C ports, and on the LG 5K, he's got one unused USB-C port. On the OWC dock, he doesn't use one of the USB-A ports. Now, there's a spare Ethernet port on the iMac since he uses the one on the dock. Now, the next thing I needed to do was lay out all of those peripherals that Steve has now using the ports on the Mac Studio, Studio Display, and the LG 5K. Well, my guess was correct. He can have all of those devices plugged in without needing a dock. But it's even better than that. Without the dock, he will have even more open ports. On the Mac Studio, he'll have two USB-C on the front and two Thunderbolt 4 slash USB-C ports open on the back, along with an HDMI port that he doesn't need. On this studio display, he'll have an extra USB-C port, and on the LG 5K, he'll have another extra USB-C port. Now, there's one more consideration. The studio display comes with a built-in webcam. Many, but not all, people who received review units have reported that the quality of the camera isn't good enough. Apple has promised an update to fix the issues people have reported. If we assume that they do fix these problems, then Steve might be able to abandon his Logitech C920 webcam and just use the camera in the display. If that works out, instead of five unused USB ports on his original setup, he would have seven spare USB-C ports, two of which are actually Thunderbolt 4, all without the complexity of using a dock. The bottom line is if, if you're looking at getting a Mac Studio and a Studio Display, you very likely won't need a dock to go with it. 
Even with Steve's belt and suspenders approach to backups by having two hard drives, his use of a Blu-ray burner and a printer, all of which probably don't need to be plugged in all the time, and that he works on a podcast, he's still got gobs of modern and very useful ports left over. So think of not buying a dock as saving $300 on your purchase of a Mac Studio. You can hardly afford not to buy the new hotness. Well, with that, it's going to wind up this very lonely week for me. No lovely Nocilla castaways to keep me entertained while I work. No talking to Steve over video from the next room. But I did want to tell you, you can still email me anytime you like at allison at podfeed.com, and I will probably respond. If you have a question or a suggestion, or better yet, a review like Kurt did, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, I highly recommend joining our Slack community. It's just active enough. You know what I mean? It's not like super chatty, but it's not dead. It's, it's just that perfect amount of chatty, in my opinion. You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon, or with a one-time donation like Philip did, at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we will be here next week, so you can head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.